This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Gospel Tangents is supported by users like you. Please support us at gospeltangents.com or on Patreon. It's the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. And first daily Mormon history podcast, I'm Rick Bennett. In our next conversation with Scott Vance, we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about seer stones versus the Urim and Thummim. You know, recently I talked to Jim Lucas and Jonathan Neville, and they claimed that Joseph only used the Urim and Thummim for translation of the Book of Mormon. We're going to talk about some seer stones, and Scott says he has a source that uh, Jim and Jonathan don't use where Oliver Cowdery refers to a stone in the hat. So you won't want to miss this conversation. Check it out. Because we can segue into seer stones if you want to. Let's do that. All right. So I recently talked to Jim Lucas and Jonathan Neville. Um, They just came out with a book by means of the Urim Thummim. Uh They really promote Joseph and Oliver as sure. saying that the Urim and Thummim was used, yep. and they have to, what I would say, discredit Emma and David Whitmer, especially, and others that say a seer stone was used. Now, this seems to be one of your favorite topics, and let's let's dive into there. Sure, and it is a favorite topic of mine because it was something that I was totally unaware of. I considered myself a reasonably diligent and faithful and uh, member when I was a member. Um, I, I thought I knew the history as well as anybody. I obviously didn't, but um, I had heard nothing about seer stones. And so when I finally read Brody's book and it talked about seer stones, I was like, yeah, Brody made some mistakes. Even though I left the church, I still didn't believe that Joseph Smith had used a brown seer stone. Oh. So come 2015, when the church... So your in, team, you and Thumb, too, or you used to be? Well, I, I was, in the sense that I, I was like, there's no way that the church would not tell the truth about this, because why would they, why would they be deceptive about this? It didn't make any sense to me. So I was like, a seer stone? No. no. Okay. Uh, anyway, 2015 comes along, and they publish a picture of the seer stone, and I'm taken by surprise. Okay. And so I start researching the topic. Was that the white seer stone or the brown seer stone? The, the brown was, was the one that they published, obviously. 
Well, they've got the whitewood too. Well, okay. So here's where I get frustrated because there are accounts that they have the white one and Quinn has published and others have published that they do have the white one. And I've asked, um, is it Keith Erickson? He's in the church history library. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's in charge of this. So he gets to keep this here. So I've asked, do you have the white one? He's like, no. Cause I've seen, I got a book with the white receiver stone on the cover. Yeah. That's an artist's depiction. And in fact, yeah. Okay. Yep. So I, I don't know who has seen the white one and who has the white one. I, had believed until Keith said that, that the church had it. Um, and at this point, I just don't know. I don't know who to believe. But they definitely got a brown one. They've obviously got a brown one. And according to Keith Erickson and, and one of his firesides that I attended, they have a box of seer stones. Oh. Um, a box of rocks, um, as, he, as he termed it. Um, and I'm like, great, I would love to see them. I would love to study them. I'd love to understand anything I can about them. And they're like, no, no. No. <laughs> um, and, and evidently... We, we published a picture. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah. But I guess what frustrated me more than that is it's not even in the catalog. So the church has a catalog of all their artifacts, right? Are these like Hiram Page's seer stones or Oliver Cowdery? Do we know? So what I understand is that these are seer stones donated by members who want to help the church. They say, Grandpa died. He had this seer stone. Here it is. Oh. Um, so my understanding, and, and it could be incorrect, but my understanding is this is random church members between maybe 1880 and 1960 just said, hey, this church stone is important for church history. Here you go. Okay. And evidently there's a box of them and they don't know what to do with them. Uh, they, what they did tell me, they said that we can't um, confirm the provenance of these stones, meaning that they can't say that it was handed down from A to B to C, which makes it a genuine historical artifact, and that's why they're not publishing information on them. So that that is a, a plausible reason for them uh, refusing to publish information. But they do have provident, provenance for the brown one. Excellent provenance for the brown one. Um, I also have reason to believe that they possibly have the green one, but they've denied that one as well. Um, the green one? Yeah. So uh, Sally Chase. Okay. Um, if I'm getting this right, and there's so many different sources that I'm just trying to piece things together as best I can. Um, Sally Chase had a seer stone. You remember the story. Joseph looks at Sally Chase's ass. Sally Chase's seer stone. All he can see is the seer stone that he's supposed to go dig up, right, when he looks at her stone. So he goes off and he digs up his first seer stone, which most historians believe is the white one, but some people disagree. Okay. And then after he gets the white one, a couple years later, they're digging a well on the Chase property, which some people think they were actually digging for treasure on the Chase property. But regardless, they're digging. Um, digging for something. They're digging for something. And somebody in the well, um, different accounts say a different person dig it up. Um, but Chase says, my gosh, it was mine. Um, it's on my property. It's mine. Yeah. Well, I, and I think he also claimed to have dug it up. Um, but it was the Brown Searstone. Most historians believe that the Brown historian was dug up there. Um, and usually it's referred to as Chase as well. That was, uh, and that's the one that Joseph used for the Book of Mormon? That's the one that most historians believe he used for most of the Book of Mormon. There is disagreement, and that is fair based on all the competing quotes. Okay. Um, but most historians believe, uh, I believe it's the Davis, uh, sorry, David Whitmer account, where he says that after 116 pages were lost, um, Joseph didn't use the Urim and Thummim, i.e. the spectacles. At that point, he transitioned wholly to the seer stone, which... I thought that was Emma that said that. 
there may be multiple people who said it, but the one that I'm thinking of right now, I believe, is David Whitmer. I could be okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So after the 116 pages, so all of the current Book of Mormon is translated probably with the brown seer stone. Okay. And so if Jonathan Neville were sitting here, sure. what would you say to him? Uh, I, I would say that if you privilege Joseph Smith's accounts and Oliver's accounts and, and say that they're telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, then your conclusion is correct. Meaning if you only look at those sources, then they are talking about the Urim and Thummim. Those Urim and Thummim are the spectacles, and that's what Joseph used. Um, but if you trust any or all of the other sources, then you, you have to come to the Searstone conclusion. Why is that? Um, because they consistently talk about the Searstone and talk about the Searstone as being the only source after the 116 pages were lost. Early on, it looks like the, the glasses or the Urim and Thummim were used. It looks like they were used by placing them in a hat. Um, so they were used the same way as the brown Searstone. Um, but it was the actual spectacles that were placed in the hat. And it, and it appears that at least one of the lenses was removed and then placed in the hat. And that actually makes a lot of sense because if you look at the size of the spectacles and you look at the size of the hat, they don't fit in a hat. Right. So you have to take the lens out and stick it in the hat if you're going to use it. Okay. So I think you told me about an account that Oliver Cowdery said about using a seer stone. So tell me more about that. Uh, so it, it does. It's not actually about a seer stone, but it is an interesting account, and it does differ from his later account from 1834 onwards. So there's an 1830 account, which bonus, it's linked in the Gospel Topics essays. Okay. So if you look in the Gospel Topics essays and look for links that are not hyperlinked, then you find all sorts of interesting content. Okay. Uh, one of these is an account by a shaker. Um, who was just writing in his journal in 1830, hey, this, this preacher came to town. He was talking about this new book of scripture, the Book of Mormon, which was translated from golden plates. Um, the, the guy who was the preacher, his name was Oliver Caldry. He's, he's the guy who was acting as the scribe, he said, when, when this book was written down. And the way that he said it was translated was that um, Joseph looked at these gold plates and then he stuck his head in a hat and then the inspiration flowed. Wow. I, I'm paraphrasing, but that's roughly what he said. Okay. So if you believe this This person, is on a Shaker account. Yeah. So, so is it easy to say, ah, it's not Mormon. We can throw that away. Well, the thing about it is he didn't like the Mormons. He didn't hate the Mormons. He, wasn't, he didn't have any uh, skin in the game. Okay. So he had no reason to hate the Mormons, no reason to love the Mormons. He was just like, hey, guess what? They came through town. Here it is. Here's what he said. Um, so, and 1830 is an interesting year. Yeah, I believe it was it was late in the year of 1830. Um, so this would have been one of the very first missions of the church when Oliver was sent off to um, convert the Lamanites, and on the way he just preached to random crowds. Okay. So this is an account, if you believe it or not, with Oliver Cowdery saying. As early as 1830, Joseph was used as a seer stone. Well, he didn't say he used a seer stone, but he did say he used a hat. Yeah. And he, and, and he didn't say that he used these magical spectacles. He said it, it all happened in the hat. So based on this account, I hypothesize that Oliver is changing his account over time. 
And you see this in the record as well, that the term Yerim of Thummim doesn't show up until 1832. It, it looks like in the first account, they're borrowing terms from the Bible because it's kind of speculative in the first account, and then later it becomes more definitive um, in terms of calling them the Urim and Thummim. And Urim and Thummim is biblical, so therefore, therefore it's, it's better than seer stone. It's totally better. But the other thing you have to keep in mind here is you've got the New York Saints, you've got the Kirtland Saints, and then later, of course, you have the Missouri groups and things. So in 1830, all of the saints are from New York. In New York, seer stones are kind of cool, kind of normal. Um, others have documented it, but a lot of people use seer stones in New York and Pennsylvania. However, not in Ohio. Seer stones are not cool there. Seer stones are kind of fringe, as far as I can tell. Okay. So um, Sidney Rigdon had a much more mainstream congregation than Joseph Smith had in New York. So when that congregation is converted to Mormonism, I hypothesize that maybe they're really not into seer stones. Maybe they don't believe in seer stones. And That's so, like 1831, if I remember right? Correct, yeah. It's, okay. uh, I, I believe that's correct. It could be late 1830 or 1831, but it's, it's very I think Sidney got just converted in about December of 1830. Sounds so it was right. congregation soon after. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what I hypothesize is that at that point, Joseph starts de-emphasizing seer stones, at least with that crowd. And you see that in the church, uh, the quote which the church likes to use all the time, mm -hmm. when they say that um, Joseph Smith um, chose not to talk about the seer stone because at the first general conference, when they were in Kirtland, Hiram says, Joseph, tell everybody how the Book of Mormon was translated. And Joseph, according to the record, says, that, you know, it's not me that I should give you all the details. In order to placate Sidney Rigdon's congregation? Yeah, because if he's telling the details, he's going to tell them about the seer stone, right? And they're going to say, that's weird. We don't believe in seer stones. And so this is why uh, E.D. Howe and Falassus Hurlbut, who are Ohio residents and seer stones aren't cool, publish Mormonism unveiled and say, hey, these guys are crazy, Right. Possibly. That, that could have been possibly part of their motivation there. Um, the seer stone is mentioned a couple of times in that book, as I recall. Right. Because, yeah. One of them is Chase's account, but I don't remember the other ones offhand. Okay. So you argue that by looking at all the sources, including this Oliver Cowdery source, which I think is pretty cool, um, that Joseph did use a seer stone... He did use the Urim and Thummim for the last 116 pages. Parts of that. I, I think he actually switched, um, switched very early on. So I would have to speculate in terms of how many pages, but only a, a very short time period with Martin Harris, it appears. Okay. So, you know, because my big thing was, didn't he use both? And it sounds like that's what you're saying. He did use both, but he transitioned very early. And for the current Book of Mormon, what we have, what's published today, it looks like it was all brown searstone, okay. possibly white searstone, but basically searstone in a hat. Okay. And so you, it seems like you also talked about that there, you, you agreed with Jonathan and Jim that people always kept the seer stone separate from the Urban stone because that's one of the things that they argue. Yeah, so there is a quote that you can pull out from the late 1830s or early 1840s where Joseph Smith is showing the seer stone to perhaps the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, 
uh, perhaps Wilford Woodruff or other, and he probably used the term uranum thummim at that time. But in general, for the early witnesses, for the David Whitmers, or Martin Harris's and them, they always understood them as two separate terms. They always understood them as two separate objects, that the uranum thummim was the new name for the spectacles and that the seer stone was separate. Okay. So who was the first one that started conflating these two, two together? So... B.H. Roberts <laughs> is an interesting guy. Um, he serves a mission in the UK. He does that because he gets arrested on polygamy charges, and so he skips town the next day, and he's on a mission. Voila. <laughs> which means he's not in jail, which can you blame him? Anyway. What years is approximately? This is the 1880s. I believe it's around 1883, but I could be off. Okay. Um, so, But there's this other guy who's over in the UK mission by the name of, I want to say Edward Stevenson. Okay. He is the same guy who was a convert in like 1833 and who knew Martin Harris and who traveled out to see Martin Harris and to reconvert him to the Brighamite branch uh, in whenever that was, maybe the 1870s, I'm not sure. Okay. So anyway, he's buddy-buddy with Martin Harris, which means he knows all the stories from Martin Harris, including the stories about the Searstone. Okay. So I hypothesize, but I cannot show, that uh, Edward Stevenson was the editor of uh, the Millennial Star in the UK. And whether he crossed over with B.H. Roberts or whether there was a six-month gap, I don't know. But regardless, B.H. Roberts would have been aware of his writings and things that he'd published in the Millennial Star because after B.H. Roberts heads over there, he takes over as the editor of Millennial Star. Okay. And so you have an account which is a faith promoting account, uh, the story of the brown seer stone and how Martin Harris tested to make sure that Joseph Smith was a real prophet. Oh, that's right. Uh, it's published twice. It's published once in Desert News and once in the Millennial Star. The accounts are different. Oh. Which is fascinating. Okay. Because in the one in Desert News, it talks about how um, Joseph had a stone which he sometimes used to translate and how he would, uh, they would, to waste time or, or when they got, when they needed some time to rest after the translation, because the translation was a tedious process, they would go out and skip stones. And one time when they were skipping stones, um, Martin Harris found a rock that looked just like Joseph Smith's ear stone. So he picks up the rock, sticks it in his pocket, and they go back and he switches out the stone in the hat without Joseph seeing. And Joseph goes to translate um, and he's like, I can't translate. What's the problem, Martin? Uh, and, and Joseph said, everything is as dark as Egypt, um, indicating again that e Egyptian was this mystery language and which comes in with Reformed Egyptian and also comes in with Egyptian with the Book of Abraham later. But regardless, um, the differences that I wanted to highlight between the two accounts was just the hat. Somehow in the Desert News account, they happened to not mention the hat anywhere, um, whereas mentioned four times in the Millennial Star account. Hmm. Um, and I hypothesized that that was edited out specifically because even though they wanted the faith-promoting story, they wanted to de-emphasize the hat. It seems like in all the accounts that you see published in Deseret News and in B.H. Roberts' works, the hat is generally removed from the story. Because it just sounds weird? I think so. I think that the Searstone was weird enough, but the hat was like a step beyond. Um, 
Okay. So th- there is one mention of the hat uh, in B.H. Uh, Roberts' work from, I believe, 1909, A New Witness for Christ. Is that right? Okay. Um, volume 2, which has a large section on the translation and which talks about the seer stone. But what I hypothesize is B.H. Roberts had direct information about the seer stones, who so he knew that the seer stone story was legit. And so because of that, he had to figure out a way to um, make both stories work. Because prior to that, the Urim and Thummim narrative had been emphasized and the seer stone had been completely written out of the record between about 1860 and about the, the 1880s or 1890s. Um, but they start publishing this faith-promoting story because Joseph Smith couldn't translate with the wrong stone, therefore we know that Joseph is really a prophet because he can only translate with the real stone. Mm-hmm. Well, that means he translated with the stone, right? Not spectacles. Exactly. So, so now they have to admit that there was actually a stone and they used the stone some of the time. And that's what Beatrice Roberts argues. He's like, the stone, it was basically Urim and Thummim. You know, they worked the same way, so potato, potato. Okay. So that's his argument. Um, but he does keep the seer stone narrative alive. And it stays alive throughout his lifetime. And then as soon as he dies, within a year or two, the narrative disappears from all church literature. So I argued that B.H. Roberts is the reason that the church talked about the seer stone between about 1895-ish and 1936, including in Sunday school. Okay. There are at least five uh, Sunday school lessons that talk about the brown seer stone. From the 1920s or something? 1920s, yeah. And... Funny enough, there's this gap of like six years where they don't talk about it. That's when B.H. Roberts is on a mission and not in Salt Lake. <laughs> really? Yeah. So so to me, that's pretty compelling evidence. That, that was he, his polygamy mission? That No, that was... Um, so his... He wrote... Uh, what is it? His, about the Book of Mormon? Uh, uh, what is it called? New Defense for the Book of Mormon? No? Um that could be the title. I'm not coming up with the title, but it was first published by the uh, around 1980. Even though B. H. Roberts wrote it in 1920, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, studies I know on the Book what Mormon. you're talking about. I can't remember Study, the name. Of it studies on the Book of Mormon, I believe. Okay, what it's called. Anyhow, he did that. He presented that to the apostles, and it sounds like the apostles were not thrilled with the idea that Joseph Smith had the capacity to write the Book of Mormon, and so they sent him on a mission to the East Coast for six years, six or seven years. I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> And during that time period, though they continued to publish Sunday school lessons, none of them talked about the seer stone. And then when he gets back, suddenly the seer stone stories are, are there again. Okay. Um, so, so my anyway, that's my working hypothesis that B.H. Roberts was the main force be- behind the church talking about the seer stone during that period. And then he dies in 1936? I believe it's 36, yes. And then we don't talk about the seer stone. There, there's an article the next year um, by Francis Kirkham who was a lawyer and who had a brother, I believe, who was maybe a a 70, but I don't believe Francis Kirkham was. Um, He was interested in in church histories. He published uh, another book which had early source material on the Book of Mormon. Anyway, uh, he published something in, I believe, The Improvement Era, an article saying that, you know, the only sources we really have for the Searstone is these old guys using old memories, David Whitmer, Martin Harris. Can you really trust those guys? <laughs> we need to really trust Joseph Smith and Oliver Calderi. Yeah, this Searstone oh. this stuff, it's rubbish. <laughs> Basic, I paraphrasing, obviously. So they're the Jonathan Neville and Jim Lucas of the day. Yeah, so I, after that article is published, I, I think based on the rhetoric that he heavily influenced Joseph Fielding Smith, 
And so Joseph Fielding Smith kind of parrots what he said uh, when he talks about the seer stone in Doctrines of Salvation, saying that, yeah, it's true they had a seer stone, but I don't believe they used it because why would you use the seer stone when you got the Urim and Thummim and it's so much better? Um, again, paraphrasing from Doctrines of Salvation. Okay. So uh, anyway, that's, that's how I believe the history happened. Okay, so from, can we say 1940 till the Gospel Topics essays in 2015? or so, yeah. we don't talk about seer stones, except for Von Brody and people like that, and Sandra Tanner and those sorts of people. Yeah, correct. But we do have a few... Uh, okay, you have the Friend article in 1974, which talks about a brown seer stone that Joseph sometimes used. Okay. That is, in my opinion, the most straightforward and direct acknowledgement of the seer stone that the church did in this whole time period. Uh Beyond that, you have an article in 1979 um, by Richard Anderson, where he goes through the various theories and he mentions the seer stone. Um, and then he says, but you know, yeah, let's listen to Joseph and Oliver. They, they were there. They would know, right? Okay. Um, and then after 2005, Jack Welch publishes a book. The title is not coming to me, but it's basically a bunch of firsthand accounts of the restoration. And if you read that book, which was published by, I believe, BYU Studies, so it's not really by the church, it's not in the official magazine, it's not anything that normal members would see, but if you're an enthusiastic scholastic member, you might see it. If you had read that book, you would understand that seer stones were likely. Okay. Um, so only to the scholars and aficionados this is known. Correct. And let me back up just a little bit, because in 1987, D. Michael Quinn published, uh, what is it, The Magical Worldview? Yeah. Mormonism, The Magical Worldview. Mormonism, The Magical Worldview. Yeah. And in that book, he goes into Searstones in detail, and he says, yeah, this brownstone was, Searstone was used, and this was the way the Book of Mormon was published. At that point, everyone who was a scholar knew that the brown Searstone was used. Um, and after that another five years, and D. Michael Quinn is excommunicated, right? A lot of people hypothesize that he was excommunicated because of his writings on early post-manifesto polygamy. Um, but I think the seer stone also played a role. Oh, well, I thought it was women in the priesthood. Uh, well, yeah, that too. Yeah, it's uh, a lot to get excommunicated yeah, for. It, sure, he did, absolutely. <laughs> um, but the reason I think that the seer stone played a role is because within the next year, there were two speeches given by general authorities that kind of vaguely mentioned the seer stone, if you know what you're looking for. One is given by Nelson. The other is given by Maxwell. Hmm. The one by Maxwell wasn't widely published until it was published in 1997, but the actual speech was given in 92 or 93. So the timing of this and lining up the timing with Quinn's excommunication, I believe that they were reacting to Quinn's publications. Hmm. I always thought it was uh, Maxine Hanks' book, uh, Women in Authority. Because he has an article in there, Women Have Held the Priesthood Since 1843. Sure, sure. And, and you know, single-class fallacy, let's, let's not go there. Yeah. There's lots of reasons why the church may have wanted to excommunicate him. And it was one, it was it 4060 or is it 3033? I don't know. Yeah, okay, okay. So it could have been a factor is what you're saying. I believe so, yes. Okay. And then, so, I mean, but for the average lay member, the average lay member doesn't read Michael Quinn. No, no. They don't read Maxine Hanks. No, and if you say the, the name... Most don't even know who they are. Exactly. And so, 
really, and well, I mean, it's interesting this friend article coming because that's for little kids. Why are they putting it there? The adults aren't going to see that. Leonard Arrington, right? Is that who did it? Well, so it's an anonymous article, so we don't know who did it, but we do know that Leonard Arrington was in charge of the history department at that time. We do know that D. Michael Quinn was uh, worked as an intern there right around that time as well. Um, I don't know who did it, but D. Michael Quinn, even from the 1970s, was saying, hey, we need to inoculate people. It's a term that the church has started using after 2010, but D. Michael Quinn was using it back in the 70s, okay. saying that if you teach the accurate history from the church's perspective, then you don't have to worry about people like the Godmakers, because church members already know the history and it won't draw them away from the church. Okay. Which is which is why I don't understand why the church still doesn't go with a completely accurate history. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Scott Vance. In our next conversation, we're going to dive into the topic of Tim Ballard. He was the founder of Operation Underground Railroad. Tim Ballard founded uh, OUR, which is Operation Rescue... Underground Railroad. Uh, oh, Underground Railroad. Railroad, yeah. Thank you. I apologize. Uh, and the purpose of this organization is ostensibly to go into areas where children are being held, um, essentially as sex slaves, and to rescue these children, um, which sounds wonderful uh, and something that everybody should get behind, but his methods and methodologies... Um, are questioned by people who work professionally in this area. Um, he's donated a ton of donations from both rich and poor um, throughout the church. He seemed to have tacit backing of the church. He had a number of publications that were um, available for sale in Desert Book for almost a decade. Thanks for listening, and I hope you to continue to enjoy Gospel Tangents. Consider becoming a Patreon or go to gospeltangents.com shop and you can get a cool tie a hat, or even a nice mug. You can also get a sweatshirt. So check it out at gospeltangents.com shop. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.